Welcome to the She Plays On Women's Football Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Chad. This week, we answer that rhetorical question many ask about women's football. If women's football is actually good, why are there so little fans and sponsors? But first, some news from this week. The 2020 SWPL season in Scotland has been declared null and void. A decision Glasgow City team manager Laura Montgomery says, quote, makes sense. Just one round of games have been played when the term was halted in March. Scottish women's football is planning to revert to a winter season for the top flight starting on Sunday 18th of October. Montgomery said, quote, I won't say it was unanimous, but it was a majority. Rangers, who finished fourth in 2019, and Celtic, who were third, started the 2020 season at Scotland's first professional women's team. The Scottish Women's League Cup had also yet to reach the quarterfinal stage, with Celtic, Hamilton, Academical and Hearts having already qualified to join European representatives Glasgow and Herbenian in the last eight. Talks between England woman and Jill Ellis, the frontrunner to replace manager Phil Naval, has stalled due to in part the former USA head coach's salary request. That's according to Sky Sports News. It was announced in April that Naval will be stepping down as manager of the Lionesses when his contract expires in July 2021. England women are preparing for their September training camp, with the expectation that Naval will still be in charge. The financial hit the FA has taken during the coronavirus pandemic has had an impact on the search for his successor. Ellis was earning around £382,000 a year with the US team, when she decided to resign after winning her second World Cup last summer. The current players, as well as Navarro himself, will all have a say in whoever becomes the new manager. The Football Association has shortlisted a number of candidates to succeed Navarro and conducted interviews last month. England women will also not play in next year's She Believes Cup in the USA, the Football Association has confirmed. The decision has been made quote, based on existing uncertainties around the future trend of the COVID-19 pandemic, technical factors and travel logistics during a tight international window were also considered when making the decision. That's what the FA said, and the She Believes Cup, as some of you may know, is an invitational tournament held in the USA every year around February or March and includes four teams. England has competed in the event each year since its inception in 2016 and was crowned the champions in 2019. And the FA said, quote, the Lionesses Autumn fixtures will be announced in due course. West Ham United women will play their home games next season at Dagenham and Redbridge. The Hammers will move to Victoria Road, having previously played at their Rush Green training ground in Romford.
Welcome back to our Crash Course segment in focus, where we dissect one hot topic in women's football each week. This week, we want to answer that one rhetorical question your friends like to ask: If women's football is really so good, why are viewership and revenue so low? We break down this question to two parts. First, the watchability of women's football against the men's game. And second of all, the business development of football for men and women. Now, first of all, watchability is sort of a comparison between Broadway and Hollywood. As some may know, Broadway is more technical than Hollywood. Let's say you don't ask people if they want to see a musical or play tonight. Whereas you do when you're talking about movies, Broadway is also more traditional and more about techniques of actors. Whereas in Hollywood, you're talking more about the topic, you're talking more about the theme, and of course how the actors portraying someone on camera. The focus, of course, is not on Broadway and Hollywood, nor are we experts in that. But in a sense, we think that women's football is. Less direct and more technical, at least in the WSL. We talked a bit about the states, USA, being more direct last week with more high press and more long passes, and more reliance on individual players. And we think that in any event, for those who don't play football or watch it regularly, women's football does get boring quickly due to the lack of drama, which we mentioned in our first episode. But we think that. If you look also at the competitive level of the league, the Premier League is competitive at all levels. Whereas in the WSL, if the top three or four team play against other teams, they pretty much slaughter other teams. Of course, this situation also exists in other leagues like La Liga, but we think that still in those games, the direct play and the speed of the game is usually faster. Not in the way of how fast the players move or build up, but about how fast the ball is kicked and how much power there is inherently behind the game. And of course, another problem is with the circular reasoning, where when there are no fans, people think the game is not interesting. And of course, this is a circular argument, where if no one watches it, then everyone thinks it's not interesting, and then they don't watch it again. As we have mentioned in previous episodes, coronavirus helped it to a certain extent in NWSL, where more people are willing to watch women's football. And of course, the World Cup, the Women's World Cup in 2019, was another good changing point, with the political and circumstantial environment beneficial in a way to promoting women's football. We might remember Rapinoe's Megan Rapinoe argument with Donald Trump. And of course, now the support for the Black Lives Matters movement. Relating to the second point, most players in women's football are free from business decisions. They are not tied down by sponsorships. They are not tied down by advertisements, and they have the ability or the freedom to speak out or support their own causes more easily. And in general, these players are more willing to do so as well. As we have talked about in the previous episodes, these players. Play the game because they love it, not because of the money, not because of the amount of business opportunities available within the game. 
But second of all, about business development, we think that the football market is flooded with the men's game, where there's a market domination in general for men's football. And of course, as said before, there are cultural reasons, not just in the UK, but all around the world, where in general people watch one game per week of football over the weekend, usually. And of course, women's football is also associated with a lot of political movements, especially in the USA. Now, we don't think that is a bad thing, but we do have a polarized culture where we think some Republicans may actually choose not to watch the US women's national team because of Donald Trump. We think in the UK it is better, but sexism still exists. Yet, at least these arguments are not on political lines, where we think it's easier to call out sexism than political ideals being wrong. But with that said, there are some conservative movements in the UK that seem to think pushing women's football is too much positive slash affirmative action, which basically means you actively raise women's football and develop it with external powers instead of allowing it to develop itself with its own resources. But when compared to the men's game, I think it's clear that women's football is still falling very much behind in terms of youth teams, opportunities, the scale of the game, and most importantly, career paths available for players, coaches, and other staff members. I think the thing is, the positive action does not harm the men's game when compared to many other types of affirmative actions, where you may, for example, have two people fighting for the same position whereas promoting women's football is only for girls anyways, and you don't exactly steal viewers, given that these games rarely clash. Instead, most sports with well-developed women's game, like tennis, like badminton, they benefit from the women's game, as most fans would support the same team or the same league and watch the game. So we think that in terms of business development, this is an opportunity that businesses and the government is actually missing out and we think that these positive and affirmative action should be done and should continue to be done. We also want to talk a bit about capitalizing on opportunities where nations and clubs could take advantage of big events happening in women's football. For example, Scotland's appearance in the 2019 Women's World Cup the newspaper coverage locally and the news coverage in England or in the UK or just in Scotland itself was also very minimal. They had to fight for space with men's sports and as Erin Cuthbert put it, journalists could do something separate like, for example, a separate column since the games are so different. Now we think that the Women's World Cup is a good opportunity for countries where people can rally around the team, where the government can rally the people around the team, and it's a good opportunity to unite the people together to support their women's team at international events. And we think that it is a good opportunity to introduce people to a new sector of football, that is, women's football, because we think that national teams can always gain supporters who rarely watch the sport. And we think that this is, again, a good opportunity to be capitalized on come the Euro and, of course, the Olympics and the 2023 Women's World Cup. Then we want to 
end with some statistics which shows the development, especially in terms of the physical aspect of the women's game. There is research into the 2019 Women's World Cup where it outlined the huge physical evolution of the game. These changes were founded by researchers in a space of four years and they were matched to those in a study of Premier League players, the men's game, across seven seasons from 2006. It was a 169-page physical analysis report produced by Dr. Paul Bradley, who is a reader in sports performance at Liverpool John Moores University and a consultant for Barcelona and also England's physical performance manager Don Scott, they found that more distance was completed at much higher speeds in 2019 than at the 2015 Women's World Cup back in Canada. Bradley himself said that, quote, intense running distance across positions had increased by approximately 15 to 30 percent from 2015 to 2019. The researchers also looked at the evolution of the Premier League over seven years, where there was a study between 2006 and 07 and 2012 to 13, involving more than 1,000 Premier League players. And they found near enough identical percentage changes over seven years that the women's game did in just four years. And they said, quote, so it could possibly indicate a slightly more rapid evolution from a physical perspective when we look at the women's game. Now, the research was conducted using a multi-camera computerized tracking system to survey 436 players who competed at the 2019 tournament. The report found that England, quote, had by far the biggest increases in both technical elements and the highest intensity distances and efforts completed during games, with the highest ball possession of any of the semi-finalists. The US women's national team, on the other hand, had the lowest increase in physical output of the final four teams, with the 2019 figures very similar to those of 2015. That statistics didn't really stun us, given the advanced development of the US women's football team already before those years. This report, in our opinion, shows the steeper development curve in women's football, but it also shows that there is potential within the industry and that is growing more rapidly than ever before. We'll be back. In other news, Republic of Ireland defender Luis Quinn has signed for Italian side Fiorentina on a one-year contract. Quinn became a free agent after her deal with Arsenal expired, having won a WSL title and a Continental Cup during a three-year spell at the English club. She scored seven goals in 76 appearances for Arsenal after joining from Notts County in the summer of 2017. The centre-back securing a club will come as a boost to Republic of Ireland women's manager Vera Paul, with critical Euro 2021 qualifiers coming up later in the year. England forward Jodie Taylor has joined French club Lyon on a short-term deal 
until the end of 2020. The former Arsenal striker moves to France from OL Reign in the United States, who were recently taken over by Lyon's parent company OL Group. Taylor, who has also played in Australia, Sweden, Canada and the USA, will join fellow alumnuses Lucy Browns, Nikita Paris and Alex Greenwood. Taylor has represented her country at the last two Women's World Cup and was the top scorer at Euro 2017. Chelsea woman forward Bethany England has extended her contract until the end of the 2023-24 season. The 26-year-old England international scored 21 goals in 24 games in 2019-20 as the Blues won both the WSL and Continental League Cup. Her performances saw her named Player of the Season at the WSL Awards earlier this month. Also at Chelsea, Scotland midfielder Erin Cuthbert has signed a new three-year contract with the WSL champions. The 20-year-old has played 98 times for the Blues since moving from Glasgow City in 2016. She helped Chelsea win a League and FA Cup double in 2018 and League and Continental Cup titles this season. Cuthbert also helped Scotland qualify for the Women's World Cup Finals for the first time last year. Aston Villa have signed Carol Siems and Ramona Petzelberger. The German duo have joined from FFC Turbine Potsdam and SGS Essen, respectively, ahead of the new WSL campaign. Fullback Siems and midfielder Petzelberger have both represented their country at youth level. Aston Villa women have also signed Denmark striker Steen Larsen as they prepare for the WSL season. The 24-year-old joins Villa following the expiry of her contract at French club FC Fleury 91. She helped Denmark reach the final of Euro 2017 and has scored 13 times in 45 senior international appearances. Here's what else you need to know this week. Chelsea women's attacking midfielder Guru Rayton has signed an extended contract with the club until 2023. The 26-year-old Norway international scored seven times in 23 appearances in her first season with the Blues after arriving last summer. Bristol City women will play their home games primarily at Bath City's Twerton Park next season, plus some matches at Ashton Gate. Bristol City women played at Ashton Gate, which is the home of the men's team, twice last season. The move sees the WSL side leave the previous home of Stoke Gifford Stadium in North Bristol, with a capacity of 3,528, including 1,006 seats. Twerton Park is 15 miles away, but has larger terraces than Stoke Gifford's removable temporary seating. The Robins finished 10th of 12 teams in the WSL last season. That's it for our show this week. If you liked the podcast, remember to rate, subscribe and share it with your friends and family. We'll be back next week. Thank you again for listening. I'm Harry Chan and this is the She Plays On Women's Football Podcast.